Hey folks, welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast coming at you from Columbia, Missouri, where I am uh, here for the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever Missouri state meeting. I just got done talking to about Oh, about 200, 250 yeah, people. Probably. Yeah. Chapter volunteers, Saturday morning, uh, folks. Chapter volunteers, Missouri Department of Conservation, USDA, tons of partners spending their Saturday, their day off with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. It was a terrific, terrific gathering of people. We, we've snuck away, uh, a group of us, to uh, record a podcast about quail in Missouri because we've all heard the stats right and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Chris McClellan who's gonna uh, you'll recognize if you've been a diehard listener of on the wing podcast you'll recognize Chris's voice because you've done let's see you did the grazing podcast yep, right done a couple you know we've we've all heard the stats about Bob White quail and it's normally referenced since 1980 America from coast to coast Bob White quail populations have declined by at minimum ninety percent of ninety percent of our populations, and you know what's that? A forty-year time span now um, have have dropped off, and it's hundred percent, absolutely no doubt about it, related to habitat. Yep. Um, but we're not here to lament because we've got a good story to share here in Missouri about things that are happening in the state of Missouri, the show me state. That's right. So we're going to we're going to talk to a couple of folks that are both chapter volunteers with Quail Forever and biologists with the Missouri Department of Conservation about some of the great things that are happening for quail in Quail Forever in Missouri. So but before we get there, let's let Let's go, go through some introductions, and as I mentioned, Riding Shotgun, Chris McClellan, for folks that didn't hear those earlier podcasts, give a give an overview of your background, and, and we're in your hometown. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, I keep having the movie Major League right now running through my mind. You know, he's not... He's the, not the best collar man in the world for nothing, folks. Like that's, <laughs> I just keep thinking about that. I, um, but yeah. So um, I live, I live here, um, Columbia, Missouri. I'm the director of field operations for the South Region for uh, Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever. Um, the states in, in my region include Missouri, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, um, and I have the uh, honor and the privilege to to work with. Uh, amazing volunteers and uh, and partners uh, throughout my region, and uh, and put habitat on the ground every day. And uh, two fellows that we're going to visit with here today are um, are two of those folks, and um, known them a long time. And I'm excited for the conversation. So what what uh, folks don't know we're so we're recording in a conference room in um, in at a hotel in Missouri. And as, <laughs> as Chris was talking, because we're we're sitting around a table. Um, the, it must be motion sensor. I light. guess so. Yeah. And as you were talking, all the lights went off. <laughs> I was expecting a little boom, chicka, bow. <laughs> but again, just never wavered. Held it. Yeah, held, it held it together. Did, yeah. did it, see, that's the mark of a good <laughs> color commentary. That's you right. Just, you just kept your eyes on the ball. That's right. Talking about it, and. I, on the other hand, was looking around like, what's <laughs> happening? We're the dancers. Yeah, yep, yep. <laughs> well, holding steady right next to you, 
Uh, we're joined by Lee Metcalf, who is not only with the Missouri Department of Conservation, he's also a Quail Forever chapter volunteer. Thanks for joining us, Lee. Thank you. It's good to meet you. Good to meet you, too. Uh, why don't you tell folks a little bit about uh, where you live and what you do for a living and uh, um, how, how you got connected to Quail Forever. Okay. Um, I grew up in a small rural agricultural community in extreme northern Missouri. We're actually only seven miles from the Iowa state line. So um, sometimes part of the state didn't claim us as Missourians. They they were trying (laughs) to give us to Iowa. So um, I went to college in northeast Missouri. And upon graduating there in 1989, I started working for the Missouri Department of Conservation. Um, I worked in our wildlife division on public land management for about 10 years in northeast Missouri, based out of Kirksville. Hmm. Um, In the year 2000, MDC developed a new division called Private Land Services, and I was uh, fortunate enough to become one of the original private land conservationists uh, with an assignment in northwest Missouri. Um, I still currently work in Carolyn Ray County, right along the Missouri River. And all of those challenges that brought this year. (laughs) And what you're referring to for folks that may not know or live in a different part of the country is flooding. Extreme flooding, yes. From basically all of Nebraska, all of Kansas, and a whole lot of Missouri. Um, What was that, month of April, early May? That was just, you guys were underwater. Oh, it was the entire summer, too. Was it? Yes. It it basically started in December of last year, more Mm. or less. And went through the 1st of December this year. Yep, and probably. Okay, so it was a long time. But this summer, we did have the uh, uh, notoriety, I guess, or I'm not sure what the terminology is, but we had more surface acres of water in Carroll County than there is in Lake of the Ozarks. Hmm. So that was our famed, uh, <laughs> claim to fame for the summer. <laughs> so how'd you get connected with Quail Forever? Where, where'd that enter the picture for you? Quail Forever started in Carroll County in 2009. Okay. Um, for us, it was just the natural progression of partnerships that, that come with the uh, 2C Quail Focus Area. We call it the 2C Quail Focus Area because... It's from Caldwell and Carroll Counties in Missouri. Okay. Myself and the private land conservationists in Caldwell County back in 2001 started a landowner cooperative between those two counties. Um, we also use the 2C because it's a play on words because we wanted to see more quail. Mm. So In the show me stage. That's right. Right. And that, always and very that, clever. That coin very phrase clever. has paid off many times. Yeah. So. So that's the heart of what we're going to talk about today is some of the successes you've been seeing in those two counties, the two C counties, yes, and, Carroll and Caldwell County. So but before we get there, we're going to introduce Tim Cavan. Did I pronounce it correctly? Cavan. Cavan! Golly! <laughs> you, like the man that lives in the van down by the river. <laughs> now you I'll remember no, it. Right? Tim pro- Cavan. You don't know how appropriate that actually is. <laughs> I do, yes, sir. It's okay. I, I'm used to it. Yeah. I've been in Missouri since uh, 94, and I think 94% have got it wrong. Uh, where'd you move from? Nebraska, eastern okay. Nebraska. Okay. I'm, I, too, from a small rural community in mm-hmm. eastern Nebraska, just south of the Platte River, uh, about two miles and about 40 miles west of Omaha. So okay, I, I did walk up both hill, both hill both ways to and from school. <laughs> um, barefoot in the snowstorm? Not barefoot, mostly on a bike. Um, okay. I went to a one-room schoolhouse. Huh. 
kindergarten through sixth grade. I didn't know that's cool. Seven people in the entire school. Wow. Uh, two in my class. And I thought I was special. I graduated in a class of six and have been harassed about that my whole life. But that, <laughs> that's I graduated, almost your school. I, I graduated <laughs> class of two in sixth grade, yes. Um, no kidding. Yeah, and um, four of them were my cousins and two of them were my neighbors. <laughs> and, 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 and my brother. There's so. a joke there. So yeah, 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 I'm going to step away yeah. if you don't know each other. And small, small Czechoslovakian community um, up in, like I said, rural, rural Nebraska. Yeah. So that flooding you were talking about originated in, you know, central Nebraska. And if you saw the videos on YouTube or whatever, North yeah. Bend, Nebraska, the bridge, that was my that was mm. my school, my high school, and that was my community up there. So. Um, and it trickled all the way down through the Missouri River, packed Lee's area, and then I got the brunt end of it where mm-hmm. I'm at now, which is southeast Missouri. Mm-hmm. And how I got there was I went to University of Missouri after I graduated high school, and then, you know, in and out jobs here and there. I worked three years in wildlife division in, in northeast Missouri as well, Kirksville. That's where I ran into Chris. He worked with me in our, in our work team. Um, and then later on, I transitioned to private land biologist, conservationist in uh, 2007. Okay. And I've been doing that ever since. I was gonna, I was gonna tell this story too. So not to date Lee, but not to date Tim either. But uh, I told Bob earlier that uh, I met Lee in 1998 or 1999. He taught ATV training, so he was he's always had this stoic instructor. Uh, presence with me <laughs> and so so he he ran me through atv training when i started with the department and when i ran into tim on that work team i killed my first mallard duck with tim huh so uh we've we've kind of got a kind of got a long history here and these are these are <laughs> these are these are two guys that i i think a lot of and have immense respect for and uh and have had uh and uh, and look up to and so um i'm had i'm glad you guys are here so Tim, like Lee, Lee mentioned he volunteered with the 2C Quail Forever chapter. You're also a chapter officer um, with Quail Forever as well. Yes, sir. Right now I am currently the Habitat Chair and Treasurer of the Boot Hill Bob White's chapter in, uh, in Benton, Missouri, which is about 15 miles north of Sykeston, roughly two miles south of St. Louis, um, kind of out there on our, by ourselves down there. Um, we started that chapter seven years ago, um, and that was more – it was more or less uh, as an effort by me probably 10, 11 years ago to get it – and just couldn't get it huh. enough enough uh, enthusiasm and enough committee members. And then one of the first three uh, farm bill biologists were centered down there or, yep. or stationed down there, and that helped – that helped drive it just enough to get it going. And, you know, we bounced around from county to county, but we've really got a really good committee centered out of Benton, Missouri. And I, I have no, I have all faith in them as moving forward. So we just needed that one little, that get over that one little bump in the road. And yeah. seven years ago, we did that. Well, before we go too far, thank you to both of you guys for, you know, you, what you do for a living is one thing, but then to step beyond that and volunteer as a non with a nonprofit conservation organization, you know, it's spending your own time. You know, I'm sure as biologists, your chapters lean on you for your expertise and that makes a world of difference to an organization like ours. It adds credibility to that local <laughs> chapter in the community instantly. So thank you for giving your time to uh, also be volunteers. Thanks and for what, asking. What, what's, what's, 
interesting about that, Chris, is these guys are not anomalies. Um, it, w- when you go around the country, there's an awful lot of agency, whether it's USDA, Soil and Water Conservation Districts, um, Departments of Conservation, DNRs, mm-hmm. awful lot of professional biologists that then turn around and give their time as volunteers with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. There, there's a, it's, it's not, like you said, it's not unique. And I think um, it's, it all, it's all centered around the passion, you know, for, for the mission. Yep. Um, you know, that's, that's what brings everybody together. And, um, um, you know, and they, it just, it's very, it's very powerful. It's a very powerful thing. And, and, uh, and folks, you know, give a heck of a lot of time volunteer, you know, they, they go to work every day, uh, put habitat on the ground and they never take that hat off. They come and they volunteer and put more habitat on the ground. And it, it's a positive feedback loop. Um, yeah. and it's, it's amazing. And, uh, and it helps strengthen, you know, not just our partnerships, but our relationships, you know, and, uh, to me, that's, that's a very, very, you know, that's the most important thing. Well, it's a wonderful testament to the, kind of the validity of the organization and the model Mm -hmm. that, you know, the agency professionals step forward and say, I'll volunteer for that. You know, I, I, this is going to help make a difference to, you know, there's a reason you guys came, became biologists in the first place, right? You know, you wanted to make a difference on the landscape and you, you invested your education in it and your heart and your soul and your time and your talent. And now you're, no, you're it was for the money. Volunteer. That's what they always told me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, right. Right. Uh, you know, it's I, I haven't found similar. that person yet, but yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just sit, you know, I, I, I keep thinking back, you know, on, you know, we got, you got Lee and Tim sitting here, but I mean, shoot, there's, you know, there's, there's a whole, whole lot of Tim's and Lee's just right next door mm-hmm. in, in that, in our state convention. And this, uh, this has, um, you know, our, at least for the Missouri state meeting, it, it, it's a great opportunity to, um, you know, not only get folks like Tim and Lee in the room, mm-hmm. but get the chapter volunteers around our partners too. Right. You know, we are, we do all this together and, and it creates that opportunity and it's, it's, you know, it's very powerful, um, just to see how much this, what we're doing resonates with everybody involved. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really cool. So to all those folks out there that work for agencies that are volunteers, and I can think of, well, you know, Scott, Minnesota, and, and Michael in South uh, South Carolina, mm-hmm. and, you know, Tommy Kay in South Dakota. And, I mean, instantly you think of dozens and dozens of names. Um, thanks for being volunteers in addition to what you do as biologists for these agencies. So, and well, to you guys, thank yeah, you very I much. I appreciate that. I, I can't wholeheartedly say I think it's completely selfless because it's kind of selfish too. Because <laughs> yeah. um, tag teaming with an agency like Quail Forever um, has paid huge dividends in our, our focus areas for habitat. So without that connection with those chapters and those chapter volunteers and the funds and stuff that they raise and the things they do for us, um, they're paying us back a lot more than we're giving them by our our time so and you, efforts. That's there. a perfect transition. <laughs> you, you got a future in podcast yeah. hosting. <laughs> Crafty veteran. <laughs> that is terrific yeah. because yeah. that's exactly where I want to go next is to talk about uh, what's been happening in Missouri, particularly in the counties that you guys represent. So, but but first, let's 
paint the picture of, you know, you started working, Lee, you said 1989. Mm-hmm. Um, so the quote-unquote quail crash was underway by 1989 um describe set the stage for us when you came out of college and started working on habitat in missouri um what what was the state of the quail and quail habitat in the show me state well when i come out i was uh, as i said working in northeast missouri and i was working on a wildlife area that was one of the original quail areas for the state of missouri and at that one time, of the original like focus areas yes, to try to improve yep, where they had done things to try to to increase the population of bobwhite quail with the interest of public hunting um, and at that time we had come up with some funding they they had a drive for bobwhite quail at that time that gave a lot of money for dozers and all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff like that and we thought we were setting the world on fire doing habitat stuff but the populations didn't seem to respond to it so you had to start thinking differently and mm-hmm. and that process for me started clear back then looking at okay we've traditionally done these things this way and they're not producing what are we missing mm-hmm. and so kind of started looking at that stuff I was also fortunate to be in a part of the state where they did a quail study in Knox and Macon counties at that time and that one of that area that I was working on was part of that emphasis so getting to tag along with those radio collared birds and finding out what they were using, what they actually weren't using that we thought they should. Mm. So talk about that a little bit, what mm -hmm. they were and weren't using and what the hypothesis was. Right. Um, They were using grass stands that didn't really look like good grass stands. Okay. Why didn't they look like good grass stands? Because the grass spot, it wasn't as heavy to grass as what people wanted their fields to look like. Okay. And this was based off of CRP. Uh-huh. At that time, our seeding rates for grasses and CRP was extremely high, sure. leaving very little open cover or, probably, f- or fort production right. in those stands. Probably not a lot of prairie flowers it, in there. Nope. It, this looked pretty and green mowed off, and so was it, it wasn't just producing. Switchgrass, blue stem heavy, or just uh, most of the grasses we were dealing with in those early CRPs were as fescue and smooth brome okay uh sod forming we know what those are today exactly so uh just learning from those things finding out that the birds weren't really interested in those areas they was interested in a part of the field that the the seed the grass seed didn't do well in Mm. and it was full of weeds Mm -hmm. you know the dreaded weed um but that's what where the quail were producing so what we've tried to do is develop systems to develop on that um, and that's these pollinator seedings and stuff with the CRP program and the stuff we're doing through Equip and other cost share programs um, are just much more suited to quail than some of those original grass stands that we were out there thinking was what we were right. going the right direction. Yeah, because I even heard some folks talking about it last night. They talk about, well, you know, the old adage is there there aren't any fence rows anymore and, the you know, there aren't there aren't these strips of grass for the birds to to live, but the reality is, some of that still exists out there. But it's the mosaic that existed in 1980. When I say mosaic, you know there was a lot of there was the ditches, there was the fence rows, there was you know the big block of CRP, there was the the ag, there there was the wetland. It was kind of a a whole variety of things and that's where the magic is right it's when we kind of try to make the landscape homogenous mm-hmm. is when 
and not just the landscape, but also the seeding mixes, right? When, it, you know, we, when we learn through some of it, radio collaring, some of it just through pure observation, like, oh, if there's 60 or 80 different species of grass and flowers in here, you can even hear it be alive, right? Mm -hmm. and, and some of that is, it's taken us a little time to get to, but nowadays, so we know what the recipe is, right? That, that's not real. It's not really a secret. Yeah. I was going to add to what Lee was mentioning, you know, it, it, it takes the interesting person, the, the research, you know, the, the studying, the time to be willing to make some changes as you go through your career. Mm. When CRP started, it was 100% focused at erosion. So those grasses were there for a purpose. Yeah. It wasn't about quail or upland birds or whatever. It was to stop erosion. And it took us several years to figure that out, you know, that, you know, hey, we should be adding some different variety to these mixes. And we introduced wildlife to the concern of CRP. So it had to come from, come from the field, the researchers, to another person, the liaisons, and then through partnerships with NGOs going on the steps of Washington, D.C. to get policy change in CRP. And it wasn't until early 2000s where we got new programs and new policy written in CRP where we could actually give landowners money to put the right stuff on the ground instead of, you know, chemical and to, to beat back where we were 15 years ago. So yeah, I just want to put that in. No, that, that's a great point. You're right on, too, because... I believe, if my memory serves correctly, Dave Nompson, our government affairs guy, um, I believe he said that wildlife wasn't mentioned in the farm bill until the 96 farm bill. His CRP was not created for wildlife. It was created for soil, water, uh, stabilized rural economies. And, you know, after the first decade, you know, it was pretty apparent that wild, it, wildlife exploded where CRP was put on the ground and then, you know, we have, have adapted over time and integrated it. So it's really an important piece of the farm bill and specifically CRP where there, like you say, there are specific programs to achieve specific wildlife goals. So right. I'm thinking about safe, right? right. It's mm -hmm. state acres for wildlife enhancement. One of those acronyms that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, <laughs> Because <laughs> it's called SAFE, but there's a, a missing W in there. <laughs> Nevertheless, that's a program that took advantage of CRP's wildlife benefits and, and fine-tuned it, turned it to 11, right? <laughs> and, spinal tap reference there for folks. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and now we have a very specific program that's got clear benefits. And I'm, I don't know, I don't remember specifically, but I think Missouri's SAFE program is focused on quail, right? We have three SAFE pro. well, we had three yeah. SAFE programs in, in the state of Missouri, and they were all quail-friendly habitat programs. And you say you had because you filled up the number of acres, right? Yeah, state allocations in the old farm bill, and then with the new farm bill, there's still some uncertainty of where they're all going to fall but yeah. the yeah. seed rates and <clears throat> policy you know we're still working that stuff out and, but and i would say too is is what's my experience with safe in missouri has been um the minute we have acres they're gone mm -hmm. you know we, we don't have any issue there's high demand yeah you know to get in there's a lot of interest there and would you you agree yes and, yes you know and uh, back on crp you know as far as you made a comment about being able to you know see the explosion of wildlife mm -hmm. tied to CRP, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, that's absolutely apparent. But what's even more apparent is when it's gone. Mm -hmm. You know, folks, folks, 
and we're seeing we've been seeing that over the last couple of years and that's just not that's not just in Missouri it's it's across my region is you're starting to hear an awful, awful lot more about you know bird numbers being down and right. and uh man that that Weehaw spot was was in CRP last year now now it's not and um and so there's a lot of optimism and a lot of uh, excitement around this this new general sign up and um and uh you know bringing it back to Missouri and quail management in Missouri, you know, you asked about setting the stage. Um, a lot of the, the focal landscapes in the state, the, where the state agency and, uh, and USDA you know, are wanting to focus for quail on private land. Most of the time centers around, you know, where's the CRP, mm-hmm. you know, where do we have existing high quality habitat and how can we expand off of that? And, um, and so it's, it's been critically important and a piece of the success here yeah 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 as we before we turned on the the podcasting machine and the recording we talked about you know quail bob white quail management is really different from coast to coast right you know from the the great plains to you know here we are middle america to you know the piney woods of georgia right there's difference in how even you take crp the value of crp in georgia is different than the value of crp in missouri when you talk about missouri it's it really is the epicenter of possibilities for crp to benefit quail right i mean Mm -hmm. crp missouri nebraska kansas i mean it is the correct me if i'm wrong the number one tool for quail habitat creation uh, across the middle part of this country yeah, it's definitely the number one tool in the toolbox for the two sea quail focus area. Yeah. It's same in San Prairie as well. Yeah. And and I would say too to add on to that, to you know, with with the lack of a general sign up here the last couple of years, yeah. If there has been a benefit to not having that sign up available is that uh it's it's challenged us as biologists and field practitioners to get really creative on how we use other programs, um, to try to continue to put that habitat on the ground and that's led us down the road of some you know some great things mm-hmm. and so um that we'll continue to do um but it you know as far as bang for your buck mm-hmm. it's that's where it's at yeah all right so i took us on a little bit of a tangent there we were talking about 1989 and you know loss of habitat crp kind of comes into the the fold and you know and Lee, in your area, it's like, okay, here's a new tool that has opportunity for us. And it wasn't too long after that, NBCI, Northern Bob White Conservation Initiative, um, kind of comes into the fold. And somebody explain NBCI for our listeners. Well, I've been involved with NBCI for probably close to 10 years now. It's It's a formation of the old southeast quail study group and it's 25 years in the making 25 states that are combined joint effort of professionals researchers biologists uh, educators all with the core interest of uh, reversing the the decline of quail populations and my role for the last uh, let's say six years or whatever has been on the outreach coordination communications subcommittee and um, it's been challenging, um, A, to figure out you know, what kind of budget we were working with. So that's a whole new, a new, uh, probably new podcast you can talk about. <laughs> but um, the message we wanted to deliver, and 
it's like you said earlier it's about those different those different uh ecologies throughout the you know the united states and the bob white coil range how do you how do you develop and have one message or or logo or um information piece that you can put on your social media mm -hmm. that will resonate across the country it, it doesn't exist it's no such thing um especially when you talk about early successional management uh, from a grasslands or a pine land or a rangeland, it is really hard to create one, three or four word message that would resonate. Anybody can grab on and say that's that sure. makes sense. It, it's 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 a challenging. So we worked with uh, DJ Case and Associates and come up with a, a like a portfolio, so to speak, where a person in Texas or person in Kansas can pick up those resource materials and biologists or farm, you know, farm bill biologists or DNR staff or anybody for that matter can utilize that one outlet, hmm. whether it be a billboard, a magazine, Google ads, and make it resonate to their state or their county or, the, or their region. So that was my role in the last okay. five years on that. So, but foundationally, NBCI is made up of 26, 25 mm -hmm. states and it's it's basically kind of the biological plan habitat plan roadmap to bring quail numbers back correct assessment correct yeah from a legislation standpoint from a from a from a uh educator standpoint from a communication standpoint mm -hmm. yes and and they are they are the grandfather of of, of quail yeah, from planning, okay, here's yes. what we need to do, and then states go back, work with Quail Forever and your, age, your nonprofit partners, and here's how to turn the tide, yes, right? And that's where Lee comes in, because the, in Missouri, the kind of the pin dot on the Missouri map was your backyard. Yes. Actually... Stepping back a little bit, when I first got introduced to MBCI was when one of the things they did um, as a group is they come into a state like Missouri and they looked at your available CRP acres by county mm. and then they developed goals for the biologists in those counties to work on so many acres of habitat in there with a specific goal of how many coveys to increase. Mm. So it was a goal of a countywide habitat goal. So that's why when we started developing our focus area, it was quite large. Um, in fact, we were told you really can't call it a focus area because yeah. it's quite large. But what our reasoning was is if we're going to prove that you can do this, this many acres and affect this many cubbies, the only way you know that for sure is to do it on a countywide basis. So that's why we set our goals very lofty and began to achieve them. Now, trickery, we didn't know that our goals were actually set on a number of CRP acres that didn't actually exist in our county, so we never had an opportunity to achieve that, but it was a good foundation for that. Also, I think it was 2005, MBCI pulled in a bunch of your state biologists and developed the um, habitat ranking that, that we use for a lot of this, of deciding where those priorities need to be. Mm. Um, with the best available quail habitat to work with to give us the best bang for the buck, so to speak. So it kind of targeted you in. Fortunately, our focus area was both counties were in the high ranking for that. So it just, it fell right in into our lap. So we'd spent some years out there trying to 
achieve those habitat goals. But again, then you start looking at, okay, how do you really know what you're doing is working? Mm -hmm. So MBI come out with six pilot states, Missouri being one of those, to start these uh, monitoring sites to mo not only monitor bobwhite quail numbers, but to also monitor numbers like eastern meadowlark, uh, dick thistle, field sparrows, um, some of the grassland species tied to that. And the problem. So, so not to take you, but mm -hmm. so 25 states and every state in the NBCI partnership is kind of identified folks. So your home state in Nebraska has identified focal areas where they looked and say, okay, there's some CRP opportunity. There's some horror historical <clears throat> opportunity and say, this is where we're going to try to influence yeah. bird numbers. Yeah. So back then it, it was 2008. It was my first year of being a PLC. So yeah, I was asked to go up with other PLCs in the area and from a county, it was like a, it was a quad, every quad in your district you had to evaluate high medium or low yeah. based on several different factors and here i'm i'm 12 months into my job I'm like how the heck do i know what, <laughs> what these answers are and the driving mechanism back then was you know interest from landowners mm -hmm. and cultural social economic reasonings from the landowner's perspective so the driving mechanism down in my neck of the woods back then was the csp program mm -hmm. Say CSP means conservation security program. Back then, back then it was yep. security yep. program, and and that's a whole new another new tangent because we didn't have we as in the landowners in southeast Missouri we were flatlanders, we didn't have CRP, mm. no such thing as CRP. We had nothing for our our, our landers that wanted to do something on their marginal production acres because it didn't exist. Mm. So it was kind of backwards how. Our restoration landscape, our focus area kind of kicked off. It took the program to appeal to the landowners. And once the landowners bought into program one, which was CSP program, it, and we made it real easy for them. It was a win-win success. Um, they bought into the agencies and the government and the grasses and the weeds and the shrubs and how it resulted in rabbits and turkey and deer and quail. Once CSP was launched... My world got 10 times busier down there. Um, so, and then in turn, as a result of CSP came the SAFE programs mm -hmm. where we are today. And we have, you'll hear some stories here probably later today in the workshops or even today in the podcast about linear feet of field borders and changes in, changes in three counties over a course of three to five years and just the influence that it made huh. throughout the entire you know, three or four or five county area we're working in. So pretty and I, impressive. And I, that, that, the point that I want to tie into that, that you're you know, hopefully is a take home point for today's conversation is, is coordination, you know, overlapping efforts can move the needle, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, back to how these dots on their map, you know, were kind of picked by NBCI there, there, Tim just alluded to it. There was a lot that went into that. And, uh, and it, it relied on, um, you know, the cultural knowledge and the opportunity and the, the willingness to participate in by the landowners and right. everything. And that these guys here, you know, had to take in consideration, evaluate. And so um, it's easy, you know, as biologists, we see, you know, focal areas and maps, you know, this is where we're going to work. And you kind of wonder, I wonder how they picked that spot. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot that goes into it. And, and, um, you know, but it's, it's a worthy endeavor. Well, and it, Lee had brought this up earlier as the critical variable there. Yeah, you know, willing landowners. 
pilots. Um, like I said, in 2013, uh, they had the six pilot states, Missouri being one of those. Well, I was approached to uh, do this monitoring in our focus area. Okay. So it, the whole goal of it was to prove that what everybody in all these 25 states was doing was actually working, so no pressure, right? Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're selected as, as the area in Missouri yeah, to six, carry that right? bucket. So um, we do have six years of data from that now. Just the basic principle, not to get too far down into this, is as you pick a, a geography that met all percentages of different habitat types to meet the model of what all these states are doing, and you pick 5,000 acres roughly, it was, I think, five to 7,000 acres, something like that, or three to five, I can't remember. Anyway, 5,000 acres where you're, there's not much management going on. None of these practices are being done in that area. Okay. And adjacent to that, three to five miles away, right. have an area that's same in size, mm -hmm. has the same percentage as all those habitats so that they match, but that you have access to those landowners and can do these practices to see if the numbers change in those two geographies. And it is shown without any doubt huh. that the habitat practices that we're doing in these areas is definitely benefiting quail and, and all the songbird species. Like too. three to one it, or yeah, better. It, yeah. Yeah. And, and so before, hold your thought. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious about, um, you talk about monitoring. Mm -hmm. um, how do you monitor response? Like, okay. well, what's the, you going out there and whistling and counting uh, whistles back or what, what are you doing? No, we let them do all the whistling. Um, <laughs> in the spring we have 200, we had 20 in these areas, uh -huh. there's 24 random points were selected. Then you take 250 meters around that point. You're listening to all the birds for a five minute period in that, that zone. Okay. Um, you repeat that two to three times each spring at each point. Two so, to three times mm -hmm. for two to three years. No, no, it's a 10 year study, 10, ten, year, yep, okay. 10 years, but two or three times in that peak whistling period of gotcha. the spring, you're going to go to that point, record all the, the whistles you hear from all those species. We listen to the dick thistles, the meadowlarks, the field sparrows, quail. And in our particular study, we also added ringneck pheasant to huh. that. So we're listening to all those and recording every whistle <laughs> that we hear from those. So you got to know what you're listening for. You, you got to be fast. Ticker. I tell you, <laughs> yeah. There's times that you're you're hearing upwards of thirty different birds in that 250 meter wow. circle whistling in that five, and you're trying to sort it all out. So yeah, it can be kind of a. So do you have to get time. trained to be certified to be a, a, a listener? Back in 13, when we first started, we did have a, a training day where uh -huh. some of our research staff come in with recordings and stuff and got people up to speed. But fortunately for me, I've had about the same people helping with our monitoring mm. for the six years. So they're kind of seasoned veterans now at this. And then we also do fall covey counts. We go out at the peak calling period in the fall and record the number of coveys we hear in a 500-meter zone so then you take those numbers and compare them to the area that's unmanaged right. to the area that's managed and see how that shakes so that out. unmanages your control the control right? yes uh, was there any um monitoring before you started doing habitat work on the focal areas so you compared like this is where it was you know before the the habitat management and this is where it came to in our situation 
um, our managed area geography was basically selected on a, where I had a group of landowners I thought would work well with mm-hmm. us. Um, the the thing that you see from the monitoring numbers is is when we started, like the Covey counts, for example, were low. And it shows you progressively over a six-year period how they've increased. Wow. And so even though they had done some habitat management and there were some quail numbers there, but they were more comparable to the unmanaged at that time, at the beginning. But now they're, like you say, three times as high or sometimes five times as three high. Three times uh, quail or each species? It's pretty much all species. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And what about, um, so you're not... I was going to add another monitoring, yeah. not, not for just from a that area standpoint, but we also do our roadside surveys from our, our agents. They've been doing roadside surveys for years. So that anecdotal data yep. shows trends. And then there's also, you can look at monitoring or research however you want, but another one that I've found really interesting in our region, Southeast Missouri was our turkey harvest. Mm-hmm. And you look prior to our focus area, focus area and the <laughs> county numbers will be you know, we don't kill a lot of birds down there anyway, but 20 to 30 birds in Scott County, we're pushing two to 300 now. Wow. So since the advent of conservation programs, that's pretty obvious. Now, mm-hmm. it's just not in that core area, but it's all over the entire county as a response to our habitat programs. Hmm. You had a thought? Well, I was just going to say I think Lee's being pretty pretty humble. And when he, you know, in terms of the, the level of success, you know, bringing it back to the NBCI, I mean um, – the, the success that we're seeing uh, with this monitoring data, and it's incredibly powerful, I mean, um, th- this this is leading the nation huh. in terms of response right now. And uh, So I want to I explain a little bit further about what's happened on the land that's elicited this response. We've, we've talked a fair amount about CRP, the acronym that everybody loves, but... You know, that's not the only tool here that you're working with landowners. And, and even specifically within CRP, what are you planting? What are your acre goals? You know, is mid-contract management? Is there prescribed burning? Explain, like, the the perfect recipe of what you're doing with those landowners to elicit an explosion of three times as many songbirds, three times as many quail. For me, it's two simple facts. One, we do everything we can to reduce the amount of grass in our grass stands. The higher the number of forbs and forb diversity we have in our stands and the less grass, Hmm. the higher our numbers go. Boy, that's so counterintuitive to the beginning of CRP, isn't it? Yes, it it is. (laughs) And and keep in mind, too, I mean, we grow grass incredibly well in in this state. Mm. The the average amount of rainfall, moisture, humidity, oh, yes. heat. I want to tell a little story here. I remember a, <laughs> I remember a uh, gentleman by the name of Tim at a pheasant fest in Kansas City one year. We introduced the concept of the workrooms. Um, yeah. so I think Tim I, from Illinois perhaps? Tim from Nebraska. Oh, to that yeah. Tim. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's me. Thought, so, sorry, Tim Corrin. I thought, they were, I thought we were taking a shot at you. No, we it, can blame it on him. No. Yeah. It, it's Tim's friend, so, Tim. From NBC, <laughs> my, my involvement in NBCI, I think we did a conservation work to, work desk thing, and I introduced it to Quail Forever, and I think they adopted that at the Pheasant Fest as a pilot. So I, I sat in. I helped with those guys to do some habitat research and working with landowners, and this gentleman walks up, and he – gets on google earth and we scroll to his property and 
I sit there and listen to him talk and talk and talk, and I, I quickly figure that figure out that he's from Caldwell County. Hmm. I'm like, oh, my gosh. What, 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 what did Lee do, you know? <laughs> and I'm sitting here listening and listening, and he's like, yeah, I got this stuff. I got, like, you know, six cubby coil on my property and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, what do you recommend that I need to do? And I said, who's your biologist? He said, Lee Metcalf. I said, I'm not going to. The only thing I can tell you probably is get rid of some of that grass, you know. He's, I said, as far as a quail standpoint, you need, you know, one clump of grass every 10 square feet, if mm. not less. You know, mm. they only really need it for, for the nesting purposes any time after that. And he's like, do you realize how much erosion is going to go on? And I said, well, if you're going to ask me <laughs> over Lee what I'm going to recommend that he hasn't recommended probably – multiple times that would be to get rid of grass and create more shrubby cover so it was just funny that you yeah, know yep. they're always looking for another answer and a way to better their habitat even if they do have six cubbies on their property so yeah. for a non-biologist listener it, it is counterintuitive but let's draw this out just a little bit like a baby quail is about the size of a person's thumb yeah, about a quarter yeah. right yeah. so the heavier the grass it's tough for those quail to get a, get through, right? That's where prescribed fire and forbs and weeds, it, it, because you want to have structure, right, to protect those birds from predators and pr- protect the chips for, or chicks from avian predators. But they got to get moving around through there, and then the, the combination of the forbs also creates the insects, which soft-body insects, which they live on. Right. So, so is that a good representation of why it's so important that you have less grass and more forbs or is it more complex than that? Actually, I think it's pretty much that simple. Like Tim was saying, the only purpose I see for grass in a quail's world is they need some dead grass to make a nest out of. Hmm. Once they hatch those chicks, grass is really not that vital to them. The, that forb component though is, um, the higher diversity of forbs you have, the higher diversity of insect species you have, which increases the amount of food those chicks have because for three to four weeks, they're 100% insect diet. Um, They're not out there grazing on grass, so Mm. um, they're actually out there finding insects. So you need mobility. You need to be able to get through the habitat. Well, most of your your native forbs or your forbs, their stem at the ground, and then they go up and they canopy at the top. So Mm. it's, it's covering them from the avian predators. But it's wide open at the ground. They can find those insects. They can cruise around under there and get around really well. Plus, your forbs tend to stand up better in the snow and the ice than does the grass. Huh. The grass tends to just fall over and cover the ground. So then in the winter, they have trouble getting around. We, we, so, were, we were just talking about this yesterday. Um, Bob, you're at the Quail Summit. Yep. We had a uh, state quail summit yesterday ahead of our uh, state convention. And uh, um, we had we got, what, about three, three and a half inches of snow on the ground probably something like that i had i had uh, the old quail habitat softball yeah on the on the bradford sign and it was about two inches above it okay so i gotta so we, share that photo with everybody yeah we, we've got we had a massive snow event come in over the week over the um, last couple of days and there was a warm season grass field just south of where we were yesterday mm-hmm. i drove by it on the way to the meeting and and it's i mean it was it, this was a heavy wet snow it's lodged over and i drove by that thinking you know bad news for but bad that's bad news right there yeah. but but you know there was a spot there um where there was some you know a little bit more forb component and it's still vertical it's still huh. upright you know the snow is not as it's dissipated there and um 
you know. Maybe to add to that a little bit, last winter in Carroll and Caldwell County was the most significant winter weather we've had in probably 10 years. Hmm. Large amounts of snow, extreme cold, a lot of ice. And so we were really curious what our fall counts were going to be compared mm-hmm. to 2018. 2018, we had our highest numbers. Highest uh, numbers in the history of the monitoring? In the in our focus area. Sure. Yeah. Wow. Um, like I said, it's been on a steady incline for, for this six years. So I knew it was going to be the best test our habitat was going to have to see what our winter survival ability is out there. Well, I think I'm going to shoot numbers, and I think they're right. I think we heard on our six points, we heard 114 cubbies Hmm. on our two listening repetitions, just total cubbies last year. This year, I think it was 108. Hmm. So we had virtually no drop-off because for some reason also this year, during the peak time that we normally think for fall cubby calling, they weren't calling. So we had trouble actually getting good counts this year, but our numbers seem to have pretty well stayed stable, even with that incredible winter right. weather, which I think is an attestament to the less grass we have out there, right. the better our winter survival spe- was. It speaks to that habitat, quality habitat mitigates weather no matter how bad it is. Right, and that leads us to the number two So <laughs> it's exactly where I wanted to go because you said the number one thing was less grass, more forest. Right. And you did number two thing. But before we go there, just so folks that are not biologists – thinking about forbs, throw out some of the species of forbs that you're putting into these mixes nowadays that have um, been really beneficial for quail. Oh, where do we even start? Uh, I mean, there's if they're doing the monarch stuff, of course, you got the milkweeds, the common milkweed, the swamp milkweed, the butterfly milkweeds. Um, partridge pea is an extremely good one. Just the native growth of common ragweed is mm-hmm. extremely critical to what we're doing any of those goldenrod um, bee balm uh sunflowers we snow? try to yeah. stay away from those yeah, do you yeah some we, species yeah, the, we, yeah we don't have any issue with goldenrod here you know we've got enough of that on the landscape but um you know um roundhead lespedezas yep. um partridge pea illinois bundle flowers um compass plant yep. cup plant yep yep and uh you know the well. So to, uh, explain why you try to stay away from goldenrod and sunflower. Some of I just because I'm a guy that sees that all mm-hmm. over the place. Well, the Maximilian sunflower yeah, probably the, the number one, one that's in there. Yep. It is very aggressive. Yep. yep. It'll grow in a clump about the size of a football year one, and then after year two or three, with the advent of fire or disking or whatever that manipulation is on the landscape, it will it will compete with other other Take over native wildflowers. Yes. Okay. And the yeah, for me, the it, same it gets way. out of the height range I want my plants. I want my Correct. plants everywhere from waist high down in a quail world. I gotcha. mean, if, if you're wanting to maximize it, you don't really want too much above that. I just think they feel intimidated to go into it. Huh. Now, a little bit of work, you know, go, mm-hmm. good for your goldfinches. And the dick sissels use it for their singing perches, you know, in the spring. They really, they really key in on the height. Mm-hmm. You know, quail, if it's strong enough, will get on something high, too, just so they can be heard. But you want to put it in moderate, you know, you want to yep. be really – you know, uh, com- you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Conscious of what you right. know, what the seed rate is. So on it's that. probably another function of you know. I think about. I'm thinking about Kansas. You know, mm-hmm. back in the day, you know, when I started hunting quail, yes. I'd go to Weehaw and 
if I could find sunflowers on Weehaw lands in Kansas, I could find quail. Yes. But things have evolved, right? Like nowadays, you know, if you can have a more diverse stand of mixed forbs, it's going to produce more quail than that old, easy to establish sunflower stand on a, on a walk-in area. Is that accurate assessment? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And it's also, you know, important to remember too, is that, you know, like I was saying earlier, you know, every situation, every state's different. You know, we, we have Missouri receives a lot of moisture. And so that's good and bad. It's, 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 it's good in that, um, you know, we don't have any problems typically getting CRP or grass seedings to establish, but certain species, you know, get out of control, can get out of control. And so it doesn't mean those species are bad. It's just because of, you know, where this state is located in right. the environmental conditions, you got to make those adjustments. Um, you know, so Western Kansas isn't even comparable in terms of, you know, how you would seed and what you would seed as it would be here just because yeah. of the moisture alone. That's the youper in me coming out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, but I'm just, but it's, it's something that's actually. But honestly, geographically, it's even smaller than that. Yeah. My plant list compared to Tim's in southeast Missouri. Is that's different. right. Yeah. So, when it's going to change somewhere else. I was going to say, I mean, there's some mixes that are, um, are created just so with the knowledge that you're going to have to go in there three years from now and control three three but he's an invasive mm-hmm. species. So you can get a list of 10, 15 wildflowers that are chemically adapted to survive on a, on that chemical that will treat Lespedeza. So hmm. it's, it's, it's basically, you, you got to tinker with it a little bit, but the, the good thing is there's 200 species to play with. So yeah, that, that's right. And, you know, it's uh, it it is kind of trial and error in some regards too. I mean, you guys know what work the best in your counties. Well, then to throw this in too, yeah. in, in my geography, the Sand Prairie areas, you know, we're we're drought tolerant species only because you know you start getting into June, July, summer, the growing months of of southeast Missouri on that sand where temperatures could reach. 125, 130 degrees on the soil. Wow. Um, only certain species survive. Yeah. So, you know, that's just as important. You don't want to, you don't want to spend 100, 200, 300 dollars an acre on a concoction that you're going to die the first year because it can't survive on that sand. So, so it's a great point um, for listeners that maybe have some land and want to do some good things for wildlife. Go see your local private lands conservationist with a state agency. Go talk to your local USDA service center. Even better yet, go talk to our own farm bill biologists um, for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever and utilize the expertise that they have for working with thousands of landowners in that particular area to know that maybe don't plant the sunflowers in Missouri like you would yeah. in Western Kansas. You know, this this may not be a good thing, but you and I are starting to think alike because I was just <laughs> thinking about making the same comment because I was hearing us talk there a little bit, and I thought landowners out there might start thinking this is pretty complex. Well, let us stay up all mm-hmm. night and think about that. Just come right. visit us, and we've yeah. we've put the brain or the time in thinking this stuff through. So right on. Um, and I was going to put a plug in for the biologist too. So. <laughs> All right. So I've delayed us long enough. You, you mentioned the number one thing that started to happen on the landscape was less grass, more forbs. Mm-hmm. What's number two? Number two is shrubby and escape cover. Say that again? Shrubby and escape cover. Shrubby and escape mm-hmm. cover. Shrubby cover, escape cover. To me, they're kind of the same thing. Um, 
that's just. So are we talking plum thickets, Russian olives, or am I saying the wrong species in Missouri? Yeah, we're going to scratch that Russian olive off of the list there. Um, <laughs> I like plum. Plums are good. Dogwoods. Okay. Uh, aromatic, aromatic sumac. sumac blackberries. Uh, yep, mm-hmm. those kind of species. And it's, it's what they're producing. They're producing about one to three woody stems per square foot. Um, you need, for cubby, a quail, they usually prefer an area that's at least 1,500 square feet, so 50 by 30. Hmm. Um, that's usually something that will entice a quail in. The thing is, is brush piles don't work. We've learned that. I, they don't. I go back and read how many conservationist articles we had on building brush piles for quail. So edge feathering? Edge feathering is what we're doing. Uh, the reason brush piles don't work is because quail, their natural defense mechanism is to flush up and out. Okay. Well, if they can't flush up and out, they're not going in. So a brush pile doesn't give them that opportunity for escape. So edge feathering is a little so bit different. So edge feathering is, is an awesome way to do that because if you do an edge feather correctly and you kill your grasses out from underneath of it, you fell your trees, your heavily lateral, lateral branch trees. That's hard to say. <laughs> um, and you fell those on the ground. It's going to provide that same one to three woody stem density that we're looking for per square foot immediately. Quail, sometimes before I can even measure them on a cost share project, there's quail in them when I go there to measure them. Mm. They find them almost immediately. Okay. So you, you build that, but if you can keep those grasses killed out under there, it's going to work like every power line, fence line in the country. All of those dogwood seeds and plum seeds, those birds eat and then drop on the ground and yeah. they grow, are going to grow in that area. So your initial tree you cut down is going to eventually rot away, uh-huh. but you're developing a whole new shrub habitat there still last another 10 to 15 years. So I'm going to revisit that just so I understand, uh, make sure I understand. So um, if you got a tree stand or a brushy stand, kill the understory of grasses Grass. underneath yep. it, then take the chainsaw, kind of chop things off and have it fall down uh, laterally parallel to the ground, right? Because yep. uh, what's better about that than, say, the old school just bonfire sort of brush fi- uh, brush pile is mm-hmm. the quail need to flush up and out and they can't do that when you're they're buried underneath mm-hmm. a brush pile it's basically trapping them from predator yep. to, for predators right is yep. that accurate yep that's accurate they may sit on top of it in a snowstorm but that's yeah. about the only use they're going to get out of it they're really not going to be able to use it for escape cover or anything mm. and that's that's what you want and it's probably counterintuitive for a lot of landowners who say well I see quail on top of the brush pile all the time, right? I mean, you, you've had to have heard that well, before, Well, in right? those situations, you probably show up, and that's the only habitat they have. Mm-hmm. So, okay. um, Which I think lead. Uh, there's a good little story I have from Carroll County when I first got there. When I first come out as a private land conservationist, all the landowners that come and talk to us at first come in to complain about the turkeys eating all their quail. Mm. Okay, so... I didn't know we were going to go here, but I like it. Well... <laughs> You never so, know, Lee. Yeah. <laughs> so that led to the the first couple of years. Basically, every visit I went on was landowners that had lost all the quail on their property because the turkeys had ate them all. So you go to this 40-acre track, and you see the old homestead that nobody lives at anymore. It's got the old wood lot, and it's got a couple fence rows in it that's overgrown hedge and stuff like that. And you got a CRP field out there that hasn't been touched, or it's been mowed every year for 10 years. Hmm. And they say, well used to have quail here and i'd ask them where and they'd point to the wood lot 
they'd point to the two fence lines and say there'd be a covey or two in those fence lines. So you say, okay. And so you start visiting with them a little bit and say, okay, when's the last time you cut firewood out of the woodlot? Nah, I got a ground source heat pump. I don't cut firewood anymore. Okay. I said, how many hedge posts do you cut out of your fence line every year? Hmm. I go to Orschlands and buy my fence post or hmm. MFA, co-op, whatever. So I said, so your woody habitat out here hasn't had any disturbance. And I said, no, but it's the same as it was when I was hunting it 20 years ago. I said, oh, okay. I said, name me somebody you graduated high school with um, that you see all the time. Mm-hmm. And they'd say, I said, name somebody you didn't see till your 20-year reunion. I said, which one of them changed more in appearance? And they start thinking about it. I said, well, yeah, the guy I hadn't seen for 20 years looked a lot different to mm-hmm. me. I said, because it's so gradual. That's what your woody component has done. Mm-hmm. It has changed gradually over time. To you, you think you see it all the time. You think it's the same. But it is drastically different. Right. I said, what's happened out there is that shrubby component you would get from cutting fence posts out of there, letting the sun hit the ground, letting that shrubby component come back, has been eliminated. It's all mature now. It's turkey habitat. It's not quail habitat. And then you talk about the grass, how it's just so thick and rank that quail can't utilize mm-hmm. it anymore, but a turkey can still stomp through it. So that kind of led to a lot of projects that we did because um, they yeah, just they see it every day and they don't realize those changes are so subtle. Yeah, that you it's hear happening. that? I mean, it is, is so true for, you know, whether we talk pheasants, rough grouse, quail. I mean, they are birds that depend on early successional habitat and you know you, you talk with folks and, well i haven't you know it's the same way it was 20 years ago like no no they, i mean it's really obvious to a rough grouse hunter because when those you know silver dollar sized aspen you know get just beyond that 15 year old birds disappear they're just not there anymore, you know, and it's the same is true of pheasant habitat, of quail habitat. Uh, you know, you, you, we af- actually have to really intensively manage our habitat for those birds there, to respond. That's what I was getting ready to say. So the trick is it's not a one one and done method either. You know, like Lee just mentioned, cutting firewood every winter or our deputy director, Aaron Jeffries, he was speaking this morning about going after this meeting and going cutting right uh trees on his property for two hours you've got to continue that evolution of that property or whatever that is every year so it's or even less than that so you got to keep doing something inside our focus area where a lot of places measure their edge feathering projects by the number of 1500 acre or 1500 acre 1500 square foot areas of edge feather they've done we're measuring it now in hundreds of acres of completed mm. edge feather, uh-huh. wow. and it's had a drastic impact on that. So if you look at Carroll and Caldwell counties, you, in a 20-year time frame, taken, um, let, taken grass out of the mix, added more forbs, number one, and then added shrub cover to the, the land, and you've demonstrated a three- multiple of three explosion in bobwhite quail and related songbirds as a result of doing those two things on private lands. Yep, that's the numbers in the MBCI monitoring stuff that we're we're in the year seven of ten. At Scott County, are those 
the, is that the same recipe in Scott County where you have a fairly different um, ecotype and, and soil base? Uh, no, we do not. Okay. Um, so our, our ecotype is a lot similar to Western Oklahoma. Hmm. You know, prickly pear cactus, joint weed, some, I can, I can rattle on different form species that are endemic to that area, but, um, no, our mech, our driving mechanism was more tied to the economic impact. Um, what I mean by that was kind of show me the money. We are intensively ag, um, ag industrial area. Uh, we got potatoes, we got corn, we got horseradish, rice, cotton, soybeans, just a plethora mm. of crops down there. So, Boy, I, I haven't been to your part of the country, and it doesn't sound like what I think of Missouri. Or even, or even south. Yeah, it's yeah. a it's a unique area. It's, so yeah, so on the on the wet years, we've got the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. You know, when we get flood prone areas, that we've experienced the same thing. You know, that the Missouri River does. We probably get it a little bit more frequently because most of my territory runs south of where the Ohio and Mississippi join. So, um, if you're anybody's heard about the New Madrid earthquake or anything like that, that's where my territory, my hmm. geography's at. So, um. I alluded to it earlier that we didn't have a CRP. We didn't have anything from the agency standpoint, organization standpoint to offer to the landowners. So it was back in the mid to late nineties where legislation and commission was trying to develop something where we could offer these landowners from a cost share standpoint. So we invented the idle land program and that was basically a, a cost share incentive for landowners to do minimal habitat management on their property, but in return get a annual subsidy to agree to not plant crops on it. Hmm. So that fit the pivot corner program, and that kind of was a catalyst to where we are today. So that program evolved into what back in 0405 was a CSP program, and the CSP program was all across the board. It was it was. Uh, Switchgrass and shrubless bedizia, linear strips. It was unharvested grain, and just like and a lot of money was given to that program because they wanted it to succeed. And boy, did it! It, hmm. it succeeded in their pocketbook, and it succeeded by just the wherewithal of how how little habitat you could put on that landscape resulted in all these birds, quail, turkeys throughout the entire geography. Hmm. So we then transitioned into the CRP program with multiple incentives from Coil Forever. Um, we and, and as well as our MDC CRP incentive back in you know mid two thousands, where we were providing incentive payments, and I think we were using our chapter money to hire contractors to put the stuff on the ground, the grasses and the shrubs. And because what we find is down in that geography, with the agricultural purpose, as soon as it dries up in the winter. The farmers fit in the fields. They don't have time to put, you know, the work into the CRP. So we we quickly utilized chapter dollars and hmm. had one or two people specifically geared to putting habitat on the ground, and mm-hmm. that worked out really well. And then so now we are here we are today. We have the, the Sand Prairie you know, QRL where – QRL? Quail Restoration Landscape. I'm sorry. That's all right. That's all right. The, the program, the money was the driving force, but then it in turn re- resulted in the landowners believing in the system, believing in what we were telling them. 
because it was all new to them. They mm-hmm. they didn't had no idea. They didn't have the history. They didn't have the old farmhouses back then. They didn't have the hedge fence rows. You know, they remember we had a pheasant stocking program back in the eighties. You know, and they remember that there were birds because it was a resurgent. It was it mm. was it was in their mindset. But um, as far as quail, it's it's a new it's a new happening down there. So Lee talked about you know really basic like let's get grass out, forbs in, and let's establish shrubs. What's it look like when a landowner? What's the landowner planting, and what's you know is it nesting cover, brood cover, winter cover? What what's the what's describe that for us so, in your area? So the chronology of um, habitat programs it started back in the idle land program was basically just let it grow up. We okay. paid you not to farm. We offered you a cost share not to farm. Whatever it. grows. Whatever Weeds, grows. grass, whatever. And it was marginal because this was really unproductive land anyway. So we weren't getting a lot of – we get uh, little blue stem, split beard blue stem, which is a, is a native uh, bunch grass to the sand prairie area down there. We were getting um, getting the blackberries, uh, evening primrose, uh, pigweed, mare's tail, so mm-hmm. on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And the CSP program was a little bit more geared towards switchgrass and shrubless, but it's because, A, all the partners were geared towards getting it to succeed, and we wanted it user-friendly from a landowner's perspective. So we wanted hard seed. We didn't need a bunch of equipment and contractors going around, couldn't get stuff in it. So we gave them bags of seed or cups of seed based on what they did and just threw it on the ground. Huh. But the first three years, it was like, oh, my gosh, birds everywhere. Yeah. But then eventually, you know, the switchgrass took over. And, cause it, you know, but it was a good educational tool, you know. If you, if you idle property, it's, the landscape's going to manicure itself. It's going to want to recover eventually to something. Mm-hmm. We just happened to speed it up with the switchgrass seed. And over time, it got too thick and the quail disappeared. What happened? Well, perfect opportunity to talk about you know, management with fire and, and, and reducing the grass load. So when CRP was, our safes were created, we, we knocked it down to one pound of little blue and one pound of uh, split beard. One pound of seed per acre. Pure live seed yeah. per acre. And probably ended up throwing half of that away when we got it. Mm. And just used the split beard. <laughs> it might have happened on a farm or two. I don't know. <laughs> True confessions. <laughs> of but uh, majority of that is, is Forbes. Huh. Um, Forbes and shrubs. And we had a hard time. So there's 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 that thread again, it's though, th- right? It, it, yeah, the component Forbes you know, and shrubs. The take home point quail. is Forbes and shrubs. Yes, our shrubby component took a very long time to get established. So because of the droughty soils, mm-hmm. you know, it took them three to four, maybe even five years to actually provide cover. So you're looking at a six year shrub planting actually functioning for quail in a ten year CRP. It doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense. So right. we. We tinkered with the down tree structures and stuff like that. It, you just gotta. See, it doesn't. I, it doesn't work. But I even learned some of this back when in the late seventies, early eighties, when I was younger, <laughs> and was doing a lot of, of quail hunting and stuff in that North Missouri community there. And they had a program then called set aside, mm-hmm. and it literally just paid landowners just to idle part of the crop field out for one year. Mm. Those those areas went to 
ragweed, common ragweed, giant ragweed, and foxtail. Mm. And I tell you, we wore dogs out in those areas. Those quail in that one-year idle in that just supreme habitat, the populations would just explode. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that it was large acreages, and it wasn't worm-season grasses. It was just that it had just enough grass components to nest and just supreme uh, brood-rearing habitat followed by extreme good winter food supply. Those ragweed seeds are, I think, Missouri's number one seed for yep. quail, native mm-hmm. seeds for quail in the in the winter. So. Those, those little micro-habitats, yeah. you know, we haven't talked about that, but the habitat within the habitat is is really important to quail. And what I mean by that is is those bunch grasses. If you miss a, if your sprayer tip gets plugged and you're trying to kill grass, it's okay. You know, if you have an area the size of this room we're sitting in, 30 by 30, where you're, you know, you missed, that's okay. And the quail actually prefer that different, mm-hmm. that microhabitat in that landscape. So the concept of edge feathering, the concept of down tree structures or shrub plantings inside of the, the, the four plantings creates that microhabitat. Gets back to that mosaic. Yes, and mosaic. It, if yes. it's not. We're trying to mimic the natural community, <clears throat> prairie landscape that exists in. Same, same thing with the prescribed fire. If yes. you're burning a field yes. and part of the field didn't burn, don't go light it. Right. Hmm. It's, it's obviously already the habitat you're wanting because the fire wouldn't carry it. So yep. don't go out there and string fire through that mm-hmm. because that, that's that little micro area that you're looking for. Those are important. Yeah. Yep. That's important. So I, I'm identifying that, okay, there's a little bit of a thread that carries with, with forbs and shrubs, wherever you're talking about in the state of Missouri, that's going to help create quail. But at the same time, there's some differences, right, between northern Missouri and southern Missouri. So it relates back to, you know, if, if you want to create quail, quality quail habitat, no matter where you are, whether it's Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, Georgia, there's some things that are going to be in common, but there's a whole lot that's going to be different, right? Like my hope coming into this was that we were going to talk about Carroll and Caldwell County and the recipe for quail, and we could, you know, um, package that up and ship it to Georgia, and we could ship it to West Texas, and we could ship it to, you know, uh, Southern Iowa. And, you know, maybe the only place that that might work is Southern Iowa, right? Because <laughs> there's, some, there's some things that are similar. But by and large, like, it, the key for any landowner is to go into that farm bill biologist, to go into the private lands biologist uh, with your state agency or USDA because there's, you know, two, four decades worth of CRP knowledge, worth of, you know, the right grass for mix, the soil type, the ecotype, you know, it's, that's the nature of biology, right? It's, yes. there isn't going to be a silver bullet. Yes. You know, I say the same thing about marketing and communications. Everybody wants me to give them the recipe for how we're going to tell the pheasants forever, quail forever story to the world. Like there's this one magic silver bullet. And that doesn't exist. Doesn't exist in marketing. Doesn't exist in biology. It's, it's, tweaking all the different lever- levers, right? It's the volume, it's the equalizer, mm-hmm. it's the base, it's the treble. And for us, us getting the habitat on the land, that's even different. Mm-hmm. Your, your, mm-hmm. your folks you're working with are different. Your, mm-hmm. 
you know, all of that is a variable in that. that Societal you, exactly. pressures with landowners. Yeah, yeah. The commonalities would be promoting your successes, the monitoring, the development of teamworks and partnerships, the funding sources. Those you got to have those components pretty much anywhere you want to think about succeeding. Right. And then all the other components, that's where the biologist and you know, conservationists come into play. That, you know, for pre- example, a take home for Carroll County, if you want a big crowd, you serve a meal. You provide free food in Carroll County. I'll get a crowd every time. I will. I will agree to that in Southeast Missouri as well. <laughs> if but you in want Southeast Missouri, you got to show them the money. Yeah. You know, and that's where I think we're this precision ag we've been hearing about here recently. And I think that would you know that's I have in my asterisk here. You know, kind of a timeline. I think a new opportunity for farmers and landowners in Southeast Missouri will be the incorporation of precision technology on mm-hmm. our agricultural landscape um, outside of some natural disaster mother nature throws that our way but um i don't I, i'm not going to write that down on my notes <laughs> i'm not going to i'm not going to plan for that but um i think that's that's where the next step is going to be yeah. um trying to figure out how to how to incorporate that and the microhabitats from an agricultural standpoint will can produce habitat for wildlife so as we turned on or right before we turned on the recording um machine Said, so, well, you know, if we talk for over an hour, it's going to be a really good podcast. And, and we've talked for over an hour, <laughs> and we've had a ton of good information. But I also know that both of you guys have to speak, <laughs> so I'm I'm running us towards the um, um, towards the afternoon session. So I do want to to move to final thoughts, so you guys could get prepared for your own presentations. But um, a, as we start to close down our, our conversation about quail quail habitat in missouri and success stories what what have we missed or maybe we haven't missed something but you want to make a a very specific point about something we've talked about that's um critical for for listeners to take away and uh, maybe i'll start with lee for me i think the main point that i'd like to bring out again is is you have years and years of experience in your private land conservationists here in Missouri, your Quail Forever Farm Bill biologist, access them. We are available to come to your property, look at it individually. Like we said, in small geographies, things change. We have that information and that knowledge to to help you get there faster and smarter um, than just doing it on your own. I, I just cannot emphasize enough to come to us, use the service we provide, and let us help you get there. You got degrees for a reason, right? <laughs> Tim. Uh, I just want to emphasize again, you know, the, the teamwork that it takes and the partnerships that it takes to get everything done. Um, there's no way that a Lee or myself could get have the success we've seen in, in our geographies without utilization of NRCS, soil and water, quail forever. Even the other NGOs like Turkey Federation, Ducks yep. Limited, they've partnered up with some of our programs. So, uh, and being and be willing to adapt, you know, and the tenure really does have, I think, a, a, an impact because, you know, we get ingrained with the landowners. We become friends. We become churchgoers together. Um, our phones never stop ringing, uh, which is a good thing. You know, um, but, um, yeah, I mean, without all that kind of components, I don't think it would be successful. Cool. Um, I also want to say again, thank you for – not only what you do as biologists, but also what you do as volunteers. Uh, talked about that early on, but uh, uh, what you do as volunteers is incredibly 
important and validating to who we are as an organization. So thanks for giving him your time. Um, as we close, uh, we, we have just a couple stats that I think are really startling to some folks, or maybe startling to some folks, um, about Quail Forever Missouri. And Chris, you can add some color sure. to this if I miss. <laughs> the very first chapter of Quail Forever started in St. Louis yep. back in 2005. It, it actually started the day after we announced yep. the launch of Quail Forever. So the Gateway chapter in St. Louis is still going strong. Their banquet is next weekend. It is. So when this airs, it'll have already happened. But thanks to those folks, uh, we're up to 18,000 members of Quail Forever in 189 chapters across the country. And I, I mentioned this in my... Um, morning talk. When I think about Missouri, I, I equate Missouri on the quail forever side of things to Minnesota and the pheasants forever and, um, as a parallel and just that pheasants forever was born in Minnesota. We've got 24,000 members in Minnesota. It's just the natural uh, brand recognition and, and you know, it being the home state of Pheasants Forever just has made it really strong. Our presence is really strong. And what we do on the ground in Minnesota is unparalleled just because of the natural synergy of being based there. And I, I feel like Missouri, because of its early kickoff here, there's a lot of parallels between, you know, Missouri and Minnesota. With On the quail side, we've got 2,400 uh, members of Quail Forever in the state of Missouri, 19 chapters. We've got 15 farm bill biologists, and we have these partners at the state agencies. And, you know, if you think about Missourians yeah. for Monarchs, uh, uh, the amount of activity and momentum for all wrapped around quail, whether we want to talk about Monarchs, water quality, pollinators, for us, the intersection point is quail. And uh, the amount of things going on in Missouri is really startling. It, it is. It is. And it's, it's, uh, it's been fun to be a part of. I mean, that's, I mean, for me personally, that's, it, that's what drew me to want to work for the organization, you know, seeing, you know, being with the state and, and seeing the role that Quill Forever plays, not just in Missouri, but, you know, is continuing to increase in playing, you know, across the South, Southeast. Uh, it's unbelievable, but it's, uh, it's a commitment by everybody involved to say we want to move the needle for habitat. And, you know, that's from our chapter volunteers to, you know, our agency partners and, and we all bleed for it. And, uh, it's been, uh, fun to be a part of. And, um, you know, the, the success as we talked about today and Lee and, and Tim's, uh, geographies, it's, it is a, it's something to be extremely excited about and be incredible, you know, have, be very positive about because what these, two men are showing is that it can be done right and it can be done in a big way and uh, there's a lot of hope out there when absolutely. you you know because there's there was a time there when everybody you talk to would kind of ah, throw in the towel on on quail eh, we can't ever get back what we once had it's like well maybe you can make it better you know, because when you look at uh, your point into a graph, the NBC monitoring that we've talked about with Lee, you know, there's an explosion of quail happening in northeastern Missouri or northwestern Missouri. We had a gratifying moment this fall. We had a landowner workshop and we took them to a point on a farm that we'd done quite a bit of work on. 
and to stand there and watch the sun coming up and watching 30 landowners hear 19 cubbies calling mm-hmm. from that point was pretty gratifying. Yeah. Yeah. Like two had one, the landowner has about 1,400 <clears throat> acres, and we, he allowed us to hunt on his property last year, and we did. And I said, you don't know what you have. You really – this is this is sensational. So we bought a, he bought into the comment. He's like, all right, I'm going to go next year. So he, he won a gun at one of our banquets. He's like, I haven't shot that thing yet. So, well, come on, let's go. So he ended up calling me. He's like, can you find me any dogs? I said, I think I can. And, uh, <laughs> you know a guy. <laughs> I know a guy who knows a guy. Um, so we ended up going out, and I think we ended up uh, getting nine cubbies. Um, and one of the cubbies had 30 birds in it at least. And, mm. I mean, I was in awe. I didn't even pull the gun up. I was like, holy moly. And he, you know, he's been texting me all season long, like, can we go again? Can we go again? So yeah. went from a guy who didn't even know Quail Forever represented what they did. Um, he knew about money. He knew about conservation programs, how to make an income off of his land because it couldn't grow grass for ca- cows. He said, I got to do something with this property to a guy who's c- calling me to figure out how he can arrange with his friends to go out and you know, quail hunt the next time. So yeah. Th- this property that we were on this fall, he had, the landowner has a son that's, I believe, 19. He'd never been quail hunting before. Mm-hmm. His dad grew up quail hunting, but quail had been gone from the landscape there for a while. So they had actually got a dog this summer, and they went on their first quail hunt mm-hmm. this fall. It's amazing. That, that he took his son for the very first time. That's that's what it's about. Yeah, yeah. You've got, and you know, the monitoring is where we kind of measure our success. But from a landowner standpoint, you know, you've got to get, you've got to get them out there, uh, seeing the birds, hearing the birds, taking the birds, bird dog. You know, they've got it. And some of these landowners are all they're do, all they're accustomed to is working and working and working. And it's really a challenge to me to get them to take a day off, you know, of work and say. Like, four hours you know just go walk for four hours bring a friend let's go you know and that is you know that's a success in my mind and then when they can write an article or they can do a radio show or they can call my boss you know and say hey you know this is this is really really working i well i'm glad they did that absolutely and and you know the thing about it is is you know we you know as a biologist you guys know this as well as anybody is you can you can have your workshop Mm-hmm. Or you can go knock on the door, or you can, you know, you can try to build the momentum to do the habitat work that needs to be done. Um, but it it takes the word of mouth of the neighbor, you know, it it mm-hmm. takes that successful landowner to see eight coveys to say, you know, hey, you ought to go. Let me introduce you to, you know, so and so down 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 yeah. the road. He, you need to talk to him, you know, and and it builds yeah you know and, and that's that's what's amazing though is this the landowner you know you see a cubby rise and he's like he's automatically asking the question what do i do what do i need to do next year or the year after that to make this better so he, he he's unique he's really unique <laughs> he, he's a hard-working son of a gun but he'll, he'll see that cubby that bird dog go on point and he's like oh that's where our, that's where i burnt last year or mm. that's where i got the tree clipper here and remove them pine trees last so he, he's He's a step above, in my opinion, of of both stereotypical landowner, but he's he's really he's really keying in on what he done in the past leads to this and where I need to go in the future. So he he's one we need to keep a hold on yeah. to and build more partnerships around and 
he needs to sell our story forever to landowners. And see, that's the way it started for us Absolutely. several so, years yeah. ago. And now we've got literally hundreds yes. of those stories out there coming back to us now where they're not coming in talking about turkeys eating their quail right. anymore. They're bringing a picture of the first quail they shot on this property yeah. or the first bobolink they took a picture of. Or we had somebody talking. We had a, a nesting pair of scissor tail fly catchers yes. in the county. You know, all this stuff that – you know, quail is brought to the county mm-hmm. that you didn't think about 20 years ago when you right. was just trying to improve the numbers of quail. It's just amazing to see all this other stuff that's tied to it. And, and just so, you know, we live in 2020 and the social media folks, well, oh, you know, I live in northwest Missouri and there aren't quail. There. You know, we aren't talking about, a, we're talking about it's possible. You know, you got to you got to make a commitment. Yes. Landowners that are making a commitment, putting in the time, enrolling these conservation programs, working with the state agencies, they can produce 10 coveys of quail on their property. Yeah. They it is they can make it happen cuz once upon a time people just said, "Nah, can't do it anymore." And we're not saying you can just drive out to anywhere and just see dozens of coveys but the folks that are putting in the effort are producing birds and i would say you know on the on the flip side the you know the organizations and the partners are absolutely committed you know specifically thinking about you know speaking for missouri here missouri department of conservation natural resources conservation service u.s fish and wildlife service all the other partners are you know the amount of effort that goes into you know, the, the monitoring that, that Lee's doing and the work, the agencies are committed mm. to provide the tools needed to bring mm-hmm. this bird back. In, well, in, there's in. an underlying threat there too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what happens if poboy quail populations continue to decline and there's a threat of an endangered species, right? Then that changes the entire dynamic of the relationship between landowners and the land. Mm-hmm. And, doing voluntary conservation programs through the farm bill is proven successful and can prevent that from anybody heading down that road you bet and and it will and uh you know but it takes it takes those you know like lee was saying he's got you know hundreds of success stories those are hundreds of of uh, champions for conservation that are out there keeping his funnel full and and but it starts with one you know starts with the one it takes one but it takes uh, you know community absolutely yep so if folks um, maybe they live in missouri and they want to uh, get connected with the missouri department of conservation and find out what they can do for quail habitat on their property how do they reach out to uh, the department or to one of you guys just go to our website and uh, on the right hand side it'll be landowners are engaged and you can pull down our menu for your county and find your representative on that county so it says find my contact you can type the county in and they'll give you all the mdc contacts for that county great it'll give you your conservation agent Mm -hmm. of course that's probably going to change now with our reorganization what it'll say but we'll give you a list of all those people but we will be on that list yeah and if folks listening want to uh, connect with a pheasants forever quail forever farm bill biologist you can go to our websites pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org and click on the conservation tab there's a drop down menu uh, farm bill biologists where you can put in your zip code and find uh, the pin dot on the map of the farm bill biologist closest to you um, any counties in Missouri that 
desperately need a Quail Forever chapter that come to mind immediately? All of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you if you go to uh, right on the homepage of Pheasants Forever Quail Forever, there's a find a chapter map. You can click on that and get involved with your local Quail Forever or Pheasants Forever chapter. Uh, we also have our events, our banquets listed on there at pheasantsforeverevents.org. Uh, the Quail Forever chapter banquets are part of that map as well. So uh, we will invite everybody to join our cause because there is tangible evidence that we can create quail the little less grass a little more flowers and some shrubby cover. And, and Lee, you get the closing thought. Closing thought is these chapters are so important in this community-based system that Tim and I have been talking about because your landowner base there, the folks that are actually doing this, they see that money stay in the community. Mm-hmm. They see this, mm-hmm. this stuff stay there and work on their properties and their neighbors' properties, and that's why this this agency is so vital to what we're doing. Yeah power of that local model that we uh we have with pheasants forever and quail forever where locals chat local chapters put on a fundraising event and then those dollars uh enable them to work with landowners like you guys do to plant those shrubs and get some flowers into the ground lee and tim and chris thank you very much for spending your time and your expertise and again thanks for being volunteers thank you for the invite All right, folks, I am Bob St. Pierre saying always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening to On the Wing podcast with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. If you're not yet a member, please go to the website, pheasantsforever.org, quailforever.org. 92 cents on the dollar since 1982. That is how efficient we are. 92 cents on the dollar has gone into the creation of wildlife habitat. We invite you to join us in our noble mission, and uh, we'll talk to you down the road. Thank you.